I've entitled this message, Angry for God. What does it look like to be angry for God? Is it okay for humans to be angry without sinning? What is righteous anger? What is sinful anger? These will be some of the questions that we will tackle this morning as we begin. Well, let's open our Bibles to John 2, 13 through 22. John 2, 13 through 22. And as we begin, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Holy Father, we praise you. Father, we honor you, we glorify you, Father. We ask that our lives be honoring to you. Father, I ask that you bring conviction of sin into our lives by the power of the Spirit, that we'd be in awe of your grace and that we would walk in your holiness, Father. We ask that the family church would glorify you in everything we say and do. We ask that Christians all around the world do that, Father. We ask that you give us wisdom when we become angry. We thank you for your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. John 2, starting at verse 13, says this. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons... Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Can we imagine such a scene as this? I mean, Jesus is going into the temple with his disciples, ready to spend some quality time with his father. And out of nowhere, he bends down for a minute or two, starts stranding some material together and makes a whip. And instantly, he starts swinging it madly, whipping it at the animals, snapping it at the people, driving them all out. That's not just his actions, but what he says, he yells at them, he's vocal. Christ here is angry. Some try to downplay his anger and say he wasn't really that upset. He was trying to just teach his disciples a lesson, show them how serious how dedicated they need to be to God. I think that's somewhat absurd. I mean, Jesus throwing over tables, running everyone out of the temple, all for a teaching lesson? Christ here is livid. He's fuming. He's angry. The question is, why was Jesus so angry on this occasion? I mean, it made sense to have the animals right there to buy at the temple. People would come from all over having a long journey for the Passover to worship and sacrifice. This made it convenient. It made it easy for them to pick up their animal to sacrifice at the temple. But Jesus gives us a hint of the problem when he says in verse 16, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. See, the outer court 
of the temple where the animals were being sold was supposed to be a place where scriptures were read, where people would come to pray, where sacrifices were made. It was a place of reverence, a place where people could spend time with God. But the reverence, the seriousness, the awe, the opportunity to praise, the reality of the temple being a house of worship was impossible because the temple became a marketplace, a place of trade instead. But worse yet, we learn at the end of Jesus' ministry, he cleanses the temple again, and we get a little more of the picture of what was going on, why Jesus was so upset. Listen to what he says in Matthew twenty-one thirteen. My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Jesus said they had made the temple a den of robbers, the money changers, the sellers. And sad to say, the priest as well took advantage of the people in the temple who came to worship God. For example, when people came to the temple with foreign currency, they had to exchange it to Jewish currency. And the money changers would often charge an exorbitant amount, almost up to a full day's wage, for them just to exchange a foreign currency. Plus, it was expensive to buy an animal that was supposed to be for sacrifice. And who was behind it all? Who was behind all the corruption? The high priest. The one who was supposed to be focused on magnifying God, who was supposed to be leading the Jews to worship God was the very one who was distorting God's word. History tells us the high priest Annas sold franchises to money-changing booze and animal sales in the temple. It was big business to get into the temple. The money was good. But the hearts of the leaders were obviously bad. Focused on themselves instead of God. Greed Financial gain, selfishness was saturated in the temple courts because the leaders themselves were corrupt. The sin, the depravity of the spiritual leaders of the day were making a mockery of the temple, which was actually making a mockery of God. And Jesus' anger burned against the hypocrisy, the foolishness, and the prideful hearts of the Jewish leaders. Listen to what Jesus said about Spiritual leaders in Matthew 23, 25 through 28, talking about the scribes and Pharisees. He says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And this leads to point number one. Jesus hated the hypocrisy and greed of the Jewish leaders. Point number one says that Jesus hated the hypocrisy and the greed of the Jewish leaders. Jesus was the Lamb of God. And he was the Lamb on many occasions, but dealing with the religious leaders of the day, he became the lion. The very people that were instructed to guide people to God were leading them further away from him. What caused the religious leaders to be so corrupt? 
They focused on themselves. They loved themselves. They wanted more power. They wanted more honor. They wanted more money. It was never enough. But isn't that sort of how sin is? Sin doesn't give lasting fulfillment. It always wants, craves, desires more. We can't ever satisfy ourselves by trying to satisfy ourselves. I wonder if we have false teachers today. Those that are focused on what they can get from God and others instead of living for God's glory. Those that preach a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel to become rich themselves, who feed off others for their own gain. False teachers who try to build wealth and power by ignoring half the Bible and preach a positive, ear-tickling message so that everyone leaves with fuzzy good feelings instead of conviction of sin. And the answer, of course, is what? Yes. We have many false teachers today. We know that in the last days, there will be many false prophets and false teachers, the scriptures tell us. Second Peter 2, 1 through 3, which will be on the screens behind us. And I'm reading this in the NLT version. I don't usually use the NLT version, but it says it so clear that I wanted to go with it here. But it says this. But there will also, but there will where were also false prophets in Israel, just as there were be false teachers among you. They will cleverly teach destructive heresies and even deny the master who bought them. In this way, they will bring sudden destruction on themselves. Many will follow their evil teachings and shameful immorality, and because of these teachers, the way of truth will be slandered. In their greed, they will make up clever lies to get a hold of your money. But God condemned them long ago, and their destruction will not be delayed. Peter says that the false teachers back then and now will face the wrath of God. What a scary thing. Peter, Paul, Jesus all stood against false teachers of the day. And today, I must say, church, it's no different. We are called to speak the truth to error. With humility and love, we are called to be bold for Christ. So I want to just give us some of the quotes by some of these false teachers without naming names so we can see error that is always associated with those who twist and ignore the word of God. And the, and the false teacher quotes will be on the screens behind us. The first one, quote number one, says this. You want to prosper? Money will be falling on you from left, right, and center. God will be beginning to prosper you, for money always follows righteousness. Quote number two. If I give $1,000, I deserve to get back 100000 because I am just. That's not greed. So what is behind both of these quotes? Is it Honoring God, glorifying God, or is it self-centered and self-focused? Follow God and he will give you riches. Give and God will multiply your gift a hundredfold. The false self-centeredness is wrapped up in these ungodly teachings. The prosperity gospel is so popular because people are desperate to have more money, to get a bigger house, to get a nicer car, to have a more fulfilled life. The false gospel feeds on the flesh. It's a self-centered message to self-centered people. 
Quote number three. Quote number three says, I was shocked when I found out who the biggest failure in the Bible actually is. The biggest one is God. I mean, he lost his top-ranking, most anointed angel, the first man he ever created, the first woman he ever created, the whole earth and all the fullness therein, a third of the angels, at least, that's a big loss, man. Yikes, I hope I don't get struck by lightning by saying that quote as I think about it. God is not human like us. He's God. We believe that God is always perfect in what he says and does. If God is a failure, then he ceases to be God. This quote also sounds like they don't believe, this false teacher doesn't believe that God knows the future, which makes him confined to time. God is outside of time. He created time. He knows the beginning of the story to the end, amen? And everything in between. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10 says this, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from the ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. That's the God we serve. Quote number four. God created all kinds of animals, but he didn't know what they were. What is that? I have no idea. Artists do that all the time. God made animals and did not have the foggiest idea what they were. He brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. God did not know what it was. He was just making something. I'm not even going to actually respond to that quote. Quote number five. Quote number five. The Lord told me Mitt Romney is going to win the presidential election. The Lord said he's going to have a second term. That was for the last presidential election. (laughs) Not this one. So when we hear words like the Lord told me so, we need to be very careful, very weary, very cautious, because this is subjective. How do we know if someone has heard from the Lord? How do we know if... They aren't self-deceived, maybe listening to their own heart or their own emotions or feelings or even Satan himself. We should be asking the question, does what this person tells me line up with the word of God? Finally, a prominent mega church pastor was being interviewed by Larry King. And I wanted to share some of the transcripts with you, again, not sharing who this person is. But I want you to listen to his mushy, unclear answers on basic Christian questions. Larry King asked this church leader, if people have to believe in Christ to be saved. Do they have to believe in Christ to be saved? A pretty direct question. Yeah. This is a church leader. I'm just reading the transcripts, by the way. Yeah, I don't know. There's probably a balance I don't believe you have to know Christ. I believe you have to know Christ, but I think that if you know Christ, if you're a believer in God, you're going to have some good works. Larry King, what if you're Jewish or Muslim? You don't accept Christ at all. Church leader, you know, I'm very careful about saying who would and wouldn't go to heaven. I don't know. 
Larry King. He's getting a little frustrated. Larry King, if you believe, you have to believe in Christ. They're wrong, aren't they? He's trying to get an answer from this guy. The church leader, well, I don't know if I believe they're wrong. I believe here's what the Bible teaches. And from the Christian faith, that is what I believe. But I just think that only God can judge a person's heart. I spent a lot of time in India with my father. I don't know all about their religion, but I know they love God. I don't know. I've seen their sincerity, so I don't know. I know for me and what the Bible teaches, I want to have a relationship with Jesus. What in the world did we just hear? What is this? The most known leader in the Christian world today can't even give a clear answer if Christ is the only way to salvation? John Piper says this, Jesus boils when he sees godliness as a cover for gain. Jesus said this, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of God also be ashamed when he comes back in glory of his Father with his holy angels. Mark 8.38 How well are we grounded in the word of God? Can we see error from truth in this confused Christian world that we live in? Are we willing to speak up for the truth, for Christ, for God's glory? John Calvin once said this, a dog barks when his master is attacked. I would be a coward if I saw that God's truth is attacked and yet remain silent. Will we stand for the truth because we have a zealous love for Christ this morning? Well, let's go back to our main text. Let's go back to John 2, 15 and 16. John 2, 15 and 16. And making a whip of cords, he, that is Jesus, drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables, and he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade. We've mentioned that Christ was livid because of the hypocrisy and the rebellion of the religious leaders of the day. But what was under Christ's anger? What was the root of his anger? What motivated Christ to be so angry? This leads to point number two. The root of Christ's anger was found in his love for God. The root of Christ's anger was found in his love for God. Christ's anger, his righteous indignation was ultimately put on display because of his love, his zeal, his passion, his faithfulness to the Father. Christ had a perfect hatred for sin, for rebellion against God, especially with the religious leaders of the day, those who were supposed to lead people to God. I know some psychologists think that anger is a negative emotion. They conclude that anger is never right, nor is it good. But as believers, we must disagree because our Lord was angry. And to call his anger wrong calls our Lord a sinner. Christ's anger was free of pride. Christ's anger was free of revenge, free of fear, free of fighting for his own way. Christ's anger was wrapped up in the love of God and love for others. 
We must also remember that Christ wasn't perpetually angry either, right? He was described in the Bible as one who is gentle, who is humble and meek as well. What about us? Should we be angry like Christ at times on certain occasions? I think to answer that question, I think we might need to differentiate godly anger versus sinful anger. When do we often become angry? What often ignites our anger? Do we get angry when someone is driving too slow? Or do we get angry when someone's driving too fast? Or do we get angry when someone mistreats us? Or do we get angry when someone takes advantage of us? Or do we get angry when someone lies about us? Or do we get angry when our spouse takes us for granted? Or do we get angry when we are ignored or rejected by others? And the answer is, I can confidently say, yes, most of the time. Yes, we do get angry often when someone hurts us or mistreats us. But I would ask us this morning, what is behind anger like that? What is the root of that type of anger? Is this the same anger that Christ had? Point number three, the root of man's anger is often found in his love for himself. The root of man's anger is often found in his love for self. I say love for self because our anger is often rooted in helping, protecting, and taking care of ourself. It's an anger that has nothing to do with God's glory and people rebelling against God. It is an anger that is self-oriented instead of God-oriented. I would ask you, how many times did Christ get angry when someone took advantage of him? Or when he was mistreated? When he was beaten and finally killed? And the answer is, never. Never. He didn't come to earth to get his way or to fight for his rights. He came to submit and follow and obey the Father. Period. Robert Jones says, Righteous anger focuses on how people offend God and his name, not me and my name. Romans 12.9 says, Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. The word for abhor here means hate. Anger is accompanied with hatred. The more we love Christ, the more we will hate sin, hate rebellion against God. But we may think of sin as murdering someone or abusing a child, or stealing. And those, of course, are sins that we must and should disdain. But, what about our own sins? Our own sinful struggles. Do we confess and repent for our own sins? Do we hate, do we abhor the sins in our own life? Sin like worry, fear, unforgiveness, gossip, unwholesome talk, lying. Are we taking the sin in our life seriously? Are we honoring our spouse? Do we love others? Are we putting others' interests above our own? Are we sharing God's word with others? There are so many sinful struggles that we deal with on a daily basis that often go unnoticed. And we sort of look at everybody else's sin. Look at that sin over there. Look at over there, over there, over there. What about the sin in our own heart? 
In the Old Testament, people had to go to the temple to worship God. But we see in the New Testament, our bodies are the temple because God now resides in us. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? God's spirit dwells within those of us who are Christ. Those that have turned to Christ in repentance and belief have the spirit of God living inside of them. As the Holy Spirit is working on our heart, changing us for God's glory, we must be diligent to walk in repentance, to walk in holiness, to put to death our sinful nature. Which leads to point number four. Christ's followers are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Christ's followers are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Positionally, Christ has cleansed us from head to toe. His amazing grace has set us apart as children of God. We are made holy, set apart for the Lord's use. This means we are looking more like Christ daily, that we are maturing, we are loving God and others more. We are growing in the fruit of the Spirit. We have more love, we have more patience, we have more joy, we have more peace than we did a year ago. The fruit of the Holy Spirit lives daily in believers. It is evident in our marriages, in our attitude towards our spouse. We build one another up in our speech now. This fruit is revealed in the way we train our children. We continue to nourish them in God's word and we diligently pray with them. This fruit flows in our other relationships as well as we share God's word with one another and encourage each other in the Lord, amen? A life in the Spirit is an active life for Christ, period. Well, in conclusion, John 2, 18 through 22 ends by saying this. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he raised from the dead, his disciples remembered what he had said this and they believed in the scripture, the word that Jesus had spoken. The Jewish leaders Ask Christ, what gives you the right to come in, in here and, and mess up business as usual? In essence, prove yourself. Show us a sign. Jesus said, destroy the temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. Jesus gave them the greatest sign of all times, the resurrection. What about us? Are we living like Christ rose from the dead this morning? Are we honoring God, honoring Christ with our lives? What if Christ walked through our hearts like he walked through the temple? What would arouse his righteous anger in us? What sins would Christ confront in us? Do we have righteous anger? Anger that is ignited when God is being defamed, when God is being mocked. Christ's zeal and fury came from a heart of love for his Father. Amen? Which love is growing in us this morning? A love for Christ and his glory or a love for self and what we want? May we walk in love and hate what is evil, all for God's glory.
Let's go to him in prayer. Holy Father, we recognize, Father, that this is a pretty heavy message. Recognizing, Father, that we are still sinners. Those of us who have turned our lives over to Christ, we still struggle with sin on a daily basis. Help us not to take your grace for granted and walk in grace without repenting and confessing our sins. Help us to take our sins serious, but help us to be so thankful for what you've done for us. Help us to be reminded as we look at our sin, as you give us eyes to see our hearts, help us to be so thankful that you're letting us change to be more like your son. Help us to be vigilant in these last days where the word of God clearly says there's many false teachers and prophets all around. And most of the Christian world acts like there's no such thing. Help us to be diligent and have discernment and to honor you with our lives. In Christ's name we pray, amen. What a great, convicting, powerful message from God's word for us to think this morning, um, especially the question of if, if Christ walked through the midst of our heart, what would he find there? What are things that God is bringing to our minds that we need to take care of, that we've dealt with and been dealing with for long enough that he wants us to be set free from? That's the power of Christ in our life. It's amazing that when he finds those things in our hearts that he knew about before he brought us to salvation, that if you've trusted in Christ, he's forgiven those things as well. And so we walk as believers in this struggle between struggling with sin, but growing in our process of sanctification. And so we serve a God who will never leave us nor forsake us in the midst of, of this thing. What a, a glorious promise that is in scripture. So we give God praise this morning that along with a message like this, that is challenging to us about things that we still have a love for in our life. He comes alongside of us and loves us towards the cross of Jesus Christ. Here at the Family Church, um, we don't take an offering. We don't pass the plates, uh, but we do. If you would like to give to the ministries here at the Family Church, we do have offering boxes located at each of the exits. And that's also where if you had a connect card or if there's anything we could pray for you for, or if you would like to have biblical counseling, we offer free biblical counseling um, any questions or things you're going through in life, we would love to meet with you. We're here throughout the week. Also, if you have any questions about today's sermon or things on your mind, Pastor Terry or myself or a deacon, we would love to meet with you this morning and set aside time. And so whatever it is you're going through, whatever it is you're coming out of or walking into, uh, we would love to meet with you. So would you stand as we close in prayer this morning? I also just want to remind all of us we have VBS upcoming not tomorrow, but the next week. And so just encourage you to invite your friends and family with children. It's going to be a great time where we're going through five different countries and how children in those countries are living for the gospel in spite of persecution. And so we're really excited about this curriculum. Would you pray with us this morning? God, we thank you that we can have righteous anger. God, we pray that uh, we may go about that in the right way, that we may not have a love of self. I know so often when we do get upset or angry, it is because we have personally been offended. But God, you've called us as believers that we've given up our rights to those things, that it's all about Jesus Christ, 
God, you came and you said that I'm coming to serve, not be served. The king of heaven who washed his disciples' feet, who was willing to go to the cross for me, for us. God, what a selfless example that shows the character of God. God, we thank you for doing that. May that preface everything we think and say when we try to fight for ourselves. God, help us to, as men to lead our families in this way. Help us to raise our kids in this way. God, may we as a church glorify you. May we bring honor to your name in the midst of difficult circumstances. God, we pray for today. We pray for the offering. We thank you that you're the one that provides for us and supports us, supports the ministries that you are the ones working here. God, we thank you that we can even have anything in our lives. God, you've blessed us richly with jobs, with families, with possessions, with homes, with vehicles. God, we don't deserve any of those things, but it's because of your goodness and the gifts you've given us. God, I pray for each and every single one of us here as we go out that you may be with us. May we cling to your promises and your word. God, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.